again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A few years ago, there was a popular TV show called What Not to Wear that would redo someone's wardrobe and improve their self-image. Similarly, God's grace involves a kind of wardrobe change. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, A Glorious Grace, Designs of Grace, with this message entitled Relational Grace, which covers Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you now for the time to teach your word, and we pray that this might be an unusually beneficial day of teaching your word. Uh, strike our hearts to whatever depth there's need. May you be honored and we be blessed even because of it. And we ask in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked uh, Saturday night, last night, as well as the early service today, and that is this. If you had to choose, no right or wrong, but if you had to choose which is the greatest challenge for most people in this church and in the community in which we live, which would you say is the greatest challenge? I'll give you three options. Uh, the first option is going to be physical challenges. Uh, we know that everybody has somebody who's got cancer, who's uh, lost loved ones, and all the, the physical issues that brought such pain and hardship, so that would be one. Number two would be financial Though we live in a community, most of us are in a community of prosperity compared to other places of the world, certainly. Uh, but nevertheless, there are a lot of people who have got real financial challenges, and, and that's a, a real challenge. So that would be a second, financial. And then the third would be relational struggles. Relational struggles. So take those three, and we're just going to do a hand vote, okay? Just to, just to, to see. There's no right or wrong. It's an opinion there's no study that's been made, so who knows? But I'd like to know what you think as we walk into this particular message. So number one, how many of you would say physical might be the, the, the biggest challenge? Okay, I don't know if I see any. All right, how about uh, those that would say financial? Right, several hands, we've had that in every service. Now it tells me that either the relational is the biggest challenge or a lot of you just won't vote. So let's just make sure, all right? How many of you would say not relational would be the biggest challenge? Isn't that interesting? The vast majority of us here at least sense the need for help in relationship because that's our big challenge. If we have physical problems, we say, I need physical help, healing or whatever. If we have financial problems, we say, oh, I need financial help. If I can just get the job or, or aid or whatever. If we have relational problems, we say, I need, I need to get help. How can I find help? Think of this. This is why so many of us raised our hands. If you think of it, I don't know the percentage that's the accurate percentage. You always hear 50% of marriages end in divorce. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Some think that's a bit high. But regardless, we know that there are a lot of people who are unhappily married to the point they divorce. Now, you've got to keep in mind that of married people, which is not everybody, but of married people that don't get divorced, you know there's a lot of people who say we're married, but we don't love each other, and it is constant conflict. So you've got to add to that even of those who are married. If you go to the, the, the people in terms of this community, us at large here, when we think about financial, uh, I mean uh, in, in terms of relational issues, 
we think, well, well what about parent-child? How many of us have raised children uh, through a, a young adult age without their being from childhood up at least some, some high percentage of days that have conflict with our children or, or with our parents? It's just a relational challenge. It always is. Then you can take that into the marketplace, you can take it into neighborhoods, and on and on it goes. No wonder we say, yeah, relational challenges, that is the challenge of all challenges. Well, this is where our series will be able to bridge the need that we have in our lives in this area of challenge. Our series is on grace. It's called a glorious grace. We've been dividing the subject of grace into buckets. We've got three different buckets of topics that we're looking at, and we're now in a bucket that deals with what we're calling the, uh, the various designs of God's grace. And so last week, we were able to plunge into the whole issue of relational or, or of uh, forgiving grace, the grace that God has given to us to forgive us of our sins. That required grace. So we talked about forgiving grace. Now what we're doing is we're turning our attention to think in terms of this thing called relational grace. Relational grace refers to the grace necessary to us to be able to relate to other people in a forgiving way. It's not easy. We're all challenged in that area. It's the logical sequence having last week talked about the grace that God uses to forgive us, we closed, in fact, with the thought, hey, the Lord's Prayer. How do we pray? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're saying there's a correlation here that we should be forgiving other people in the same way that God has forgiven us. That's pretty big. How do you do that? And that's why we study this issue of relational grace. Last week, in Romans chapter 5, we were talking about that there is this thing, and I pointed out as if there were a circle here, the circle of grace. And that through justification by means of faith, being declared righteous, the meaning of justification, we are introduced, it's as if we are escorted by our Savior because of His work into this circle of grace in which we stand. A circle that you cannot get out of. Once you're a Christian, you're in it forever and ever and ever and ever. But even though it's grace that abounds, we stand in grace that abounds, as the text says, the reality is that many of us find ourselves in the circle of grace but it's as if the grace is not getting to us. And the reason we've not learned to efficiently appropriate the power of God's Spirit. And we find ourselves very weak in the disciplines of the use of the means of grace by which they are, the grace that we need is applied to us. So many of us are here but not benefiting much in it, except for the fact that our penalty of sin has been dealt with, certainly. We're a child of God, certainly. In fact, we said the two things that happen because of being in the circle of grace have to do with status, number one, and power, number two. Status. We're now children of God, totally forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future, never to deal with the punishment that our sin deserves. Jesus has taken it all. 
That's the beauty of the news of standing in grace. Man, our status, we're now children of the Father, and the Father looks at us as sons or daughters, and He loves us in spite of sin. And we said, You cannot outsend grace. Grace always bullies sin, it will take care of it. So now the issue is okay, we're supposed to show the same grace that God showed to us, we're supposed to show to other people. Now let's think about that. What about the people? who have walked out of your marriage, who have offended you in the highest offense known to a marriage relationship. And they do it blatantly. They do it, I mean, just hardened. Don't care how much pain and suffering you go through. In fact, they find themselves wanting to make it more painful for you. What about the situation and and the stories can go on and on and on. And you're living those stories. You know. Someone just this week wrote me and said, I, I'm just so curious to know about, about uh, hearing about the grace, the forgiving grace, but uh, here's what's gone on in my experience and here's uh, what I'm going through and so on. Do, do I forget? I mean, how do I explain that? Because it's hard. It is extremely hard. So I think there's some questions that have got to be answered because on one sense, we go to an extreme over here and says, oh, we're Christians. So, uh, oh, that's fine. You walked out of my life. Bless you. Okay, smile. Everything's good. <laughs> to over here on the other extreme where, where we say, you know what? I think I have every right in the world to treat you the way I want to treat you because the way you've treated me. That's only fair. And we believe in fairness as Christians. And so there's some challenges to figure it out. So what we're going to do As we're going to look at our text, which is in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. You'll find it in your bulletin. If you don't, we'll put it on the screen as well. But in Colossians 3, 12 through 15, I'm going to read the text in whole, and then we'll come back and we'll dive into it. It goes like this. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of, and then we'll read the rest. But do you notice this? It says, put on the heart of. Those that have been chosen of God. We're talking of Christians. He didn't say, hey, non-Christians, you need to put on a new heart, become a Christian. No, we've got to put on the new heart as Christians. Hmm, that'll be interesting. Well, what is that heart? It says it's a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you so also should you. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now you listen to that list and you think, now all of those are the things that I am supposed to do with the people who have hurt me the most. How can that be? Let's look at four truths. We'll start with the first. And these are going to ratchet up. Kind of start basic, but they're going to They're going to pile on in just a minute. Relational grace requires the putting on of a new heart. Now, we have a little phrase. We use it often. Ah, you're just putting on. Meaning you're acting as if something is true that really isn't, but you're you're just putting it on. Do you know this word is defined, put on, in the original language of Greek? Uh, The definition is the act of one's will 
as one would put on clothes. Well, what is the heart we're supposed to put on? Well, the heart refers to the center of the being, one's center of affections. I mean, the the deepest, this is who I am. So in who we really, really, really are inside, this is what should be put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and so forth. Now, Thayer is a name of a Greek scholar uh, whose commentaries are so excellent. And in looking up what he says about this idea of putting on a new heart, this is how he describes that. He says, it's to become so possessed of the mind of Christ as in thought. Notice he even adds feelings. They come along. And action to resemble him and as it were, to reproduce the life that he lived. Now, let's make this practical. When you woke up this week on Thursday morning, some of you were at home a while before you had to go out. Some of you had to get up and go quickly to get to work in different places. I don't know. Can you imagine what would happen if you woke up without any thought about clothing at all? And you just got in your car and headed out. And you got to work, and I don't know what you sleep in, and I don't even want to know, but can you imagine showing up to work and go, hey guys, now I'm going to just ask at this point, this was not part of the message, but how many honestly have had that dream before? Have you had that dream? Ah, we all have. I've had that dream many times, and you're going, oh my goodness, I've got to get out of here. I mean, how foolish to think that we would ever walk into the marketplace or into a grocery store or anywhere, church doesn't matter, and just come as you are. But you know, it is equally as foolish to think relationally that we're going to be able to have anything that even mirrors appropriateness, that even looks like it, unless we as consciously as we would put on clothes, we have to consciously put on a new heart. And what many of us are doing, even as Christians, we're waking up, no new heart, just take the heart we've got, don't put on these things, and walk into relationship, conflict after conflict, and we wonder, why in the world is there so much conflict? Well, I think it would be very helpful just to look at the terms that describe, that describe that new heart. And so I just, I'll just literally just say them in a, a quick word, maybe, about a few of them. Compassion. It begins with compassion. That's yearnings with deep affections. There's kindness, which is actually goodness. There's humility. Do you know that's considering other people? Think about this. It's considering the other person with whom we're in conflict to be as if more important than we are. They're not more important, but to us, we make them more important. That's part of the new heart. Or how about gentleness, which another word is meekness. It's it's quiet submission, though under great pressure. There's patience, which is another word, long-suffering. It's the idea of the proper response to being provoked by somebody. What is the response? It pushes you, and they provoke you, and they provoke you, and they, what is that? What's well, we long suffer instead of push, boom. No, it's, it's long suffering. Bearing with one another, it means putting up with others. 
I don't want to put up with people that offend me. I want to get away from them. But he says, don't put up with them. Forgiving each other. Love. Love is giving people what they need, not necessarily what they want, and certainly not necessarily what we want to give them in response to what they've done to us. There's the peace of Christ, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the peace I experience in my heart. This is regarding our dealings with other people. And then lastly, with thankfulness, where we can actually give thanks in what we're dealing with relationally. I don't know when you hear that what you think, but I think this way. That is not possible. And folks, it is not possible with the heart that we have in sin. What we have to do, and know this, even as Christians, our hearts are still sinful. They've been dealt with by the work of Christ. We now have a new ability because of what God has done in giving us a new heart, literally a a new way of life. But now we put on the heart of these things that should mirror image the heart of Jesus. And I hear that and I say, it's impossible. And you're exactly right. And if we think we can take the heart we have and we can with just enough willpower make us to be the type of people that can deal relationally the way Christ would have us to deal, don't even think about it. It's not going to happen. Seeker, that's why you need to be thinking in terms of, wow, what is the merit of becoming a Christian? What, what, is, what does God do for us when we become Christians? One of them, we stand in grace, which abounds. And that grace, as it's appropriated and brought to us by the means by which it comes, we're able to actually live that kind of life. At the end, I'll tell a story that hopefully is going to be one just to underscore, to say, hey, this can be done. God's people can put on this kind of new heart. Now, let's look at number two. That one was pretty basic, but this one, relational grace is most often conveyed by what we say and how we say it. So our attention in some of the texts we're going to look at is going to move us from the heart now to the mouth by what we say and how we say it. There's a little adage we're all familiar with. It sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Has there been a greater lie perpetrated on mankind? Oh, actually, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will utterly destroy me. Are you kidding me? Words, the damage that words can do? Oh, they can destroy a person. They can break up a marriage. They can split a church. You know they can In fact, uncontrolled words are so lethal that the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote in his epistle in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, it literally, your words become a litmus test for true spirituality. This is how it reads. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion It's worthless. So Jesus, we're supposed to be doing what Jesus would do. Have you ever thought what it would be like if you were to have an hour in the life of Jesus when he was here on earth? And you had the opportunity to just watch and listen, even if you didn't talk to him. You just observed him through the course of a day. Oh, there were times where he had to pull out a whip and, 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 and be pretty harsh because that's what the people needed so much. 
But knowing that the needs of people, they need grace so often. This is how we read, this is what we read in Luke 4. In verse 22, it says, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Can you just imagine the whispering? Listen to him. Oh, he's, that's, uh, he's so gracious. And he's so kind. The way he, that person spoke, that's incredible how he, well, that's who we are to be. That's exactly our call. So the apostle Paul comes after Jesus and he's writing about the importance of what we say. And this is what we read in Colossians 4, verse 6. It says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And then in the book of Ephesians, he says it this way in chapter 429, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, just think about it. Before we move to number three, just evaluate. If your spouse, your children, your friends at school, the people that you're dealing with on an ongoing basis, your enemies, what would they say about your speech? What would they say about our speech? Would they say, you know, she is gracious, amazing. Wow. The way she talks to her children. When I'd want to slap my kid if they did that. It's amazing. They, they deal with them appropriately. They don't let them get away with it. But man, that's pretty impressive. Or how are we talking to our, how are we talking to our spouses? Is it with respect and grace and kindness and seasoned, as it were, with salt? Well, a lot of us would say, eh, about that we do if somebody else is around but not if we're alone we know what we're talking about but it gets back to the to the mouth well, well how do you do that well obviously it's something that's not natural or we'd say yeah sure let's do it it's a challenge it has to do with putting on a new heart so we come to number three number three Relational grace chooses the behavior and words that others need regardless of their wants. Do you know that people do not desire to be treated with firmness? They don't. They don't desire to be confronted about sin. They don't want to be told they made mistakes when they need to be told. We're just not that. We don't like that. But here we realize that, whoa, whoa, relational grace, I mean, the behavior and words that we use in relational grace are designed to meet needs, not wants. What do they really need? I know this, if we didn't believe that we should give what people need, not what they want, then Christians would be the people who say, oh, no, no, drop all criminal charges against everybody. Show love. Be, be generous. Be gracious. Be kind. That's all you do. No. Christians would be people who stand against justice. And by the way, there are many Christians today that are falling away from justice. And they're allowing criminals to do nothing in terms of responsibility for what they've done. And they're doing it in the name of love. That's not love. Not at all. 
We have to ask the question, what does the offender need? Now, I don't know how many times over the course of the years I've been at this church that I've had somebody come up and say, hey, Randy, what do I do? My spouse, you probably know, has, has you know, had an affair and, and you know, it's, they, they don't want me to divorce. And they're pleading, saying, oh, please don't. I'll never do it again. And I don't know about really where they are and how bad they feel about it, but I know it's going to be hard to lose their kids and change in the finances and all. And so they, that's the last thing they wanted to, me to find out about the affair. But should I divorce them or not? Well, there are biblical grounds, but my answer certainly to those that I don't know very well, I say, you know, I have no idea what you should do. I don't know if you should stay in the marriage or whether you should divorce. I have no idea. But I would have to say to you, and this will be hard, but you ought to consider that person is more important than yourself in this decision. And you need to ask the question, What does he, what does she need at this moment? That's love. And we're just supposed to put on a heart of love. So I don't know what your your spouse needs. I know this, there have been enough stories of people that I know that spouse well enough that I've said to the offended one, I say, if I'm you, knowing what I know, I would divorce them immediately. Absolutely I would divorce them. But I just feel bad as a Christian, you know. Not a, I go, no, no, no. What does that person need? And many occasions I know that person and they're going, hey, let me off the hook again and you just keep facilitating my sin and I can just keep going and I can cover this again and again and again. And No, that's not what they need. They need justice right now. They need some consequences for what they've done. But get, get this, the key issue is what does the offender need? need more than anything else. Let's go to the final one. This one is key. Relational grace chooses the kindest behavior a given situation will allow. So we have to ask the question, how kind can my behavior be toward the offender? How kind can my behavior be without them missing out and experiencing God's best. I want them to have what's best for them. And that might be something very hard, but I want it to be, I want it to be as kind as it can be and still serve the purpose that that person needs. I think it's the same way with parenting. Uh, parents, we, we need to grace parent. We need to show grace in our parenting. And what that's saying is, hey, not, oh, I'm not going to discipline. I'm not going to, we, we know Hebrews makes it clear. Let me tell you, if you love your child, you'll discipline your child. I wonder how many people today love their children by, the, by just watching how little discipline there may be. No, 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 we discipline our children. Why? Because we love them so much. We want what's best for them. But in doing so, what is the kindest punishment? What is the kindest discipline that I could possibly show them and still accomplish what has to be accomplished in their lives? Where some of us as parents either do now or we remember doing, you know what, this is my opportunity to get that kid, I mean, they're going to be grounded forever and ever, you know? And I hope that the pain is worse than they'll ever imagine and it's almost like this is our get back to them. No. How kind can our behavior be? Well, our example is Jesus, Ephesians 4.32. This is what it says. 
and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven us. See, he did it with kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving. That's the very story of how we are to be doing it. So you come to Mark 11 and look at verse 25. Look what it says. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Some of us read that text alone and we say, there you go. I got to forgive everybody for anything they do to me. And they run to that person who's so offended them and say, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And I want to scream and say, don't do that. That's when you stand before the father. That's not when you stand before the offender. As you're standing before God, here's the expression of your heart. God, I've got to have a new heart because right now, I, it's very delight of my heart to obey you and I want to forgive them. And so God, I do. I'll declare, even if it's the fruit of my lips, I forgive them right now. But it's with the understanding that I'm not necessarily supposed to go and express that forgiveness to them. Look at Luke 17, three and four. It says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And look, conditional clause, if he repents, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times saying, I repent, then you forgive him. I think there's an understanding there, not, okay, I know, I know, the, I know the chain to pull here. Hey, I repent. But there's obviously no repentance, no. But when somebody comes, even if they're struggling in the, whatever the issue is, and they fail and fail, but they're coming and say, oh, then okay. Now that's time to show forgiveness. I know that raises a lot of questions, but what about and what about? I don't know. But that's the general principle that he gives us here is that it's just like he forgave us. And so in John, 1 John 1, 9, 1, 9, most familiar, many of you are familiar with this text. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's again put this in perspective with the, with the circle of grace. If we're in the circle of grace, we are forgiven. The punishment of our sin has done away with. It's as if we'd never sinned that. But if I want to appropriate the grace that abounds in which I stand, I've got to confess. If not, I will never experience the joy of forgiveness that I'm, I'm, I have available right now, but I have to appropriate it through the confession of my sin. So the idea here is, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't just go around slapping forgiveness to everybody. Hey, yeah, yeah, you did, you did it, go, go, go. No, no, no. That's not making anybody a super saint because it's not giving everybody what they need. One way to put it is we must love the offender when not able to forgive them. Or another way of putting it, we should be able to say, I want to forgive you. I hope you will allow me. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe the story will help. Many of you have been here a while, gone through membership process. You know the, the story of my father deserting my family when I was in college and, and all the things that went with that. And, and he was in deep sin and he was never repentant about it. When I finally had the opportunity to meet with him, I'll never forget, this is what he said to me. He said, no, we were very close. But he says, now, Randy, you know, you're a Christian. 
You'll forgive me, right? You forgive me what I've done. No. I can't forgive you. But I want to forgive you. And if I ever see a, a heart that says, I'm so sorry for what I've done, I'm going to be the first guy. I would love to forgive you right now. But if I say you're forgiven, then the consequence is taken away and the privilege is now go sin and be married. That's not what I'm, I want what's best for you. That's the whole idea in terms of not expressing what I've already said to God. Oh God, my heart's ready. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm okay. I'm ready to do it. But God, bring his heart to repentance. No repentance the no expression of forgiveness. Though I still love, though you still this and that. Yeah, but no. No forgiveness. I don't know as you see this text if it hits you like it hits me. But I look at this and I go, does this not just show how far we are from where we need to be? I mean, how many of us hear this say, yeah, that's the way I live with the people who offend me the most. Most of us say, I can't, I don't do that. I, I, I don't know how, I can't. And by the way, if you're saying I can't, yay. You never can see God do what he wants to do until we say, I can't do what you're supposed to do. So we come to that place, we say, I can't, God, but I'm gonna invite you to do it. And that's the beginning of appropriating the power of God that comes with the status that goes along with standing in grace in which we abound. It is simply that. I hope you understand that the only way this is going to happen is by bathing in the reality of what he has done for us as Christians. When you see that how we offended him, how he did nothing wrong, and how he sent his son and had his son tortured and put to death so that he could forgive us of our sins. And then we go, hey, yeah, and they've offended me. Not like I offended God, but they certainly offended me. And what I have to do to forgive them is not anything like Jesus had to do to forgive me, but I'm in his family now and I'm living his life. So God, I guess now, I, I guess I gotta have a new heart to do that because I can't do that. And God says, good, now watch power. And you say, Lord, would you grant me that ability? I'm going to invite you to invite him to give you that ability. Let's pray. Father, we have, we have plenty of people that we think about collectively in our experiences here of who we think, how could I ever love them with what they've done for me? But I pray that you would grant it. I pray that you would grant that we would be able to express the forgiveness to those who repent and before you, we would stand and say, God, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. I forgive them. I'll tell you that now. And would you give me an opportunity to express that toward them and bring back wholeness to broken relationships? I pray for parent-children who are separated right now. I pray for man and wife separated relationally right now, whether divorced or not. I pray, Father, for a unique ability to see your work on our behalf and that many would come into grace because of it. And those of us in grace would now be appropriating the grace you have for us. Use us in your word. Use us in prayer for this day and the next days to come till we come back here that we might see that grace flow toward us. 
Grant it, we pray. It's our only hope. And we ask it in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.